thank goodness for October and the fall of the year. It's your fearless leader, Rick Jones, coming to you from the bridge on a beautiful day in the low country of South Carolina. October is my very favorite month of the year. You literally watch the change in the weather from summer to fall, and in some places up north, you feel a hint of the winter ahead. I live on a salt marsh and can see the change of colors of the marsh grass. In honor of the change of scenery, we're going to complete our seven-part series on the seven C's of winning new business pitches with the final C, chemistry, and we'll spend time with my special guest, the legendary coach, athletic director, and entrepreneur, Bill Battle, who will be here to talk about his new book, The Master's Plan. We'll jump back up on the soapbox and find another wonderful place to eat on the road with Rick. There's a wonderful scene in the movie version of the classic Broadway play, Guys and Dolls. The play was based on characters developed by the legendary New York writer, Damon Runyon. In the movie, the lead character, Nathan Detroit, is played by Marlon Brando. In a pivotal scene between Brando and the female lead, Gene Simmons, she asks him what he's looking for in a girl, and he replies, chemistry. Yeah, chemistry. That leads to their singing the classic song, I'll Know. I'll Know When My Love Comes Along. Yes, chemistry indeed. Chemistry is the final piece of the puzzle of the seventh of the seven C's of new business pitches. Here's the quick reminder of all seven. Number one was competency. Number two was context. Number three was challenge. Number four was creative. Number five was collaboration. Number six was communication. And now finally, number seven is chemistry. Anytime I'm in a pitch, I like to ask the people in the room, do you like us? Because we're going to be spending an enormous amount of time together. Are we the folks you want to be in a foxhole with? Do we have enough respect for each other to be able to discuss brutal truths and make adjustments and make mistakes, but learn from them? and then do amazing work together. In other words, do we have great chemistry? And I've learned at my age and experience that the chemistry road runs both ways. The agency has to ask the same questions. Are these the types of people we want to do business with? Do we share chemistry? Because if the answer is no before we've even started working together, then the partnership probably is not going to work. Chemistry is super important in a marriage, and it's important in a new business pitch because your agency is about to get married to a client. So there you have it, the seven C's of new business pitches. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned a little something along the way.
My very special guest knows a lot about chemistry. Maybe it's because he has so much chemistry himself in spades. Bill Battle is the classic American dream story. A tremendous college football student athlete, a winning college football coach, a successful athletic director at his alma mater, the University of Alabama, and last but certainly not least, a legendary businessman, entrepreneur, and innovator. We've had Bill once before on our show talking about his extraordinary career. Today, he joins us to talk about his new book, The Master's Plan. Let's welcome my dear friend, Bill Battle, once again to The Bridge. Bill, I'm so glad you're with us today. Well, it's great to be with you again, Rick. I enjoyed uh, our, our first podcast and uh, have looked forward to doing this one. I watched last night on the uh, SEC uh, Network a new special that I think Kenny Chesney produced about the great broadcasters of the SEC, the radio broadcasters. And I thought about you, you know, your career overlapped so many of those legendary broadcasters. You know, you played for Coach Bryant, and, and at that time, the the voice of Alabama was the legendary John Forney. And then you coach at Tennessee, and there's John Ward, and then you come full circle and your athletic director at Alabama with Eli Gold, and then you worked with literally every SEC school uh, with all the other great announcers at CLC, you know, guys like Larry Munson and Jim Fife and Rod Bramlett at Auburn and so many others. Um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of interesting to look back uh, on that era and think about where you started and where you've come. Yeah, John Ward was great. He was uh, – he did my – television show and we did it at midnight uh i think coach woodruff my ad better rate it at midnight than, than he would some other time but saturday night after the game uh night i went over across town to the radio station to uh uh to do the to do my the the tennessee weekly uh broadcast and uh John was the most organized guy I've ever met in my life. I would, I would walk in, uh, you know, just a few hours after the, after the game, and had visited with parents of, of prospects, and then uh, went over to do the TV show. And John had a script already written, had the film edited, and because Tennessee is a long, narrow state, six hundred miles from tip to tip. And he was was uh, so detail oriented that he didn't trust sending out the tapes uh, or the film at that time uh, to planes. And he had drivers that, uh, after he edited the film uh, after the game, driving to Memphis and Nashville and Bristol and all the places that did our. Uh, our TV show. So uh, John was great to work with. Uh, George Mooney was the voice of the Vols before him, and he was my handball buddy. He was 48 and I was 24. And and uh, when we played, uh, when I was in town at the YMCA uh, handball, uh, we would uh, come out of the uh, three games to 21 and uh 
one of us would win two out of the three, and the next time the other one would win. And we came out with uh, wet T-shirts because of all the sweat. The funny thing, John or uh, uh, George uh, had a toupee, and so when we would dress to go play handball, the last thing he'd take off was his toupee. And <laughs> <laughs> That's, <laughs> but, <true>. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> of course, Eli, uh, we did NASCAR for a while, too, and started NASCAR's program. And, uh, and uh, of course, Eli was the NASCAR broadcaster, and now uh, he does a great job at Alabama, and it's good to be around yeah, so yeah, it, there have been some great ones uh, that I've had uh, the opportunity to be with. Uh, a funny thing about uh, how long I've been involved, when I left the conference, when I uh, uh, resigned as the athletic director, uh, I got the uh, SEC gave me a, a fishing, a, a fly rod in Rio, but they also gave me a plaque and it said, uh, it, it talked about playing as a player and from 61 to, or from 59 to 63. Uh, and then it talked about being at CLC from, uh, I guess, when we started uh, in uh, 81. And, uh, uh, and then, higher, and then that, that went for so long and then being the AD. Uh, at Alabama, and then down below it said, uh, serving the SEC for seven decades. So <laughs> I thought it was a great uh, plaque up until that. Up until but, that point, you're like, well, who are they talking about for seven decades? That can't be me. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, I think people have forgotten, you know, until the, I guess, Oklahoma and Georgia sued the NCAA back in 82. Uh, there was only one football game a week, and you were only allowed to be on once a year, um, yeah. you know, with that monopoly. And that's why the radio was such a powerful thing, because yeah. uh, you know, all my memories were listening to games. Um, yeah, cause you, no doubt. You know, and you couldn't do that. I, I'm going to make you feel really old now. You mentioned 63. I was thinking last night. In 1963, I was, I was nine years old, and I remember – staying up my mama was ironing I mean I can remember it like it was yesterday she's ironing and we're listening to Georgia Miami on the radio and and Miami had a great quarterback named George Myra that was having a great year but that night Larry Rakestraw for Georgia threw for I don't know 300 and something yards I mean just crazy stuff and I can remember that like it was yesterday um you know listening to to the great games Kaywood Ledford was at Kentucky all those years, and I was a big Kentucky basketball fan. And I remember, you know, hearing him on a 50,000-watt station out of Cincinnati in the middle of the night, you know, or late night listening yeah. to that. So, you, you know, you've – but you've had a phenomenal career. What what made you want to write the book? You know, people uh, all along kept telling me I would write a book, even when I was still – active at CLC, and, and I thought about that, and, and uh, you know, in the, in the years after we sold, we sold the company in 07, but uh, uh, the, 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 the brass, 
our owners, uh, Teddy Forceman, uh, Forceman Little, who bought the company, uh, said, uh, you know, don't worry if, if, uh, if 10 years from now we're just a licensing company, that'll be fine. We're not going to change anything, not going to change any personnel, not going to change the name. So we ran it for four years from uh, 2007, to, which was really, looking back, the, the top of the market, and it, it uh, crashed in 2008. Uh, but we were there, fastest growing and most profitable division. That was when Tiger Woods had his problem, uh, his first big problem, and, uh, and Nike Golf, which was... Uh, IMG's best property went downhill uh, pretty quickly, and uh, so uh, we were able to to run it for four years. And then, uh, as big companies do, they started dinking with us. And Pat said, "I promised him four years, and I got other things I want to do." And so he left to do some other things, and. Uh, and then Derek Eiler and Kit Walsh and a few other top execs left at the same time and formed a company. And they had a non-compete for a few years, but they did some international work and and uh, were very successful. And so anyway, uh, we, uh, we in uh, in 2007 we passed the threshold of collecting on the university's behalf a billion dollars. And then by 2011, we had paid the universities over a billion dollars. So that was something I was very proud of. And and so when you look back, you just felt like, hey, it was the right time to write the book because of, of kind of the lessons. What I love about it is it's a parallel kind of book. It's a book on your journey and the journey of the company but it's also a book on how to be successful, I think. Um, yeah, sorry, I got off on the tangent. <laughs> I got away from the question. But, yeah, the you know, I was encouraged to write a book. I thought about writing a book, but I never had time to do it. And then after uh, I had spent the four years that I promised them as the AD, uh, I had time all of a sudden. And so I thought this is the right time. I actually wrote the book longhand. I didn't get any help. Well, I I went to Alabama and got in their archives, and they've got old scrapbooks of of articles back when I was a player, and and then during the time I was the AD, and I had access to that. And Bud Ford at uh, at Tennessee uh, gave me a lot of the uh, historical. Uh, games and 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 during my 11 years there uh and then uh, so i got i got a lot of help and uh in writing about clc i could have never remembered all the detail that went in it but uh i did i made our uh, account executives the ones that managed uh university accounts every quarter they had to do a quarterly report and they had to tell them what they had done for them the year before, I mean, the quarter before, the current quarter, and what they were going to do for them in the next quarter. And I, they, my, uh, my parents didn't like to do that. It was a pain to, to have to do that. But there were two things I wanted. One, 
I wanted, they said, well, and, and they did get voluminous, and they said they don't even read them. And I said, well, you know, that may be true, but one of these days, somebody above them may come in and say, why are we paying these guys all this money? And I wanted the files to document what we had done for them. And I also wanted our staff to uh, not only uh, think about what they had done for them this quarter, but think about what they were going to do for them in the next quarter. So I had all those files, and that was like, uh, you know, a, 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 a working document that was a historic from quarter to quarter uh, viewpoint of the company. So that was a big help. And, uh, you know, I started it, and I thought I could finish it in the summer, and it really took me two years, but I got distracted some from it along the way. Uh, but I did write it all out in longhand. I thought I was uh, maybe the original cut and paster because back in the uh, back early on when I when I was at CLC, uh, I got anal, I guess, about writing letters, and so I would proof them very carefully, everything that went out and. In some cases, I'd say, well, this paragraph doesn't fit here. It ought to go here. And I'd cut it with scissors and and uh, scotch tape it somewhere down below. And uh, so I was cutting and pasting before the uh, computers uh, really came out and re replaced it. And we're doing it electronically. You know, it's interesting. I'm hearing some lessons just from this conversation, you know, you built a company on blocking and tackling about doing all the little things. Secondly, you were always looking ahead, you, you know, like a coach, Hey, last play didn't matter. What's the yeah. next play? Hey, what we did for them last quarter doesn't matter. What are we going to do for them next quarter? And, and, and how to be constantly looking to improve and be better. Um, and then how do you go out and, and literally execute against that plan uh, and there's no place to hide because you would say, look, whatever you did, I'm going to make you put it in writing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, there, there, there were two major areas that we had to continuously improve because, you know, licensing, uh, uh, the guy that uh, taught me a lot about licensing when I was in Selma was a guy named Eddie Dobbs. And, uh, and he was... Uh, street smart as much as anybody I've ever been around. He knew a lot about a lot of things that he read about and talked to people about and and talked to us. That's where I learned about licensing. But he said, you know, licensing is like coupon clipping. It's like the insurance business. Once you get somebody on board, uh, you don't lose them uh, from year to year unless you screw up. So there were two areas that we had to focus on and the first one was the one that I focused on more than anything, and that was our relationship with the universities. Because if we didn't have a contract with the university, it didn't matter how much we did for a, a, a licensee or a retailer. And so I focused on that from the start and all the way to the finish. And then Pat uh, came along and was interested in the marketing side of the business. And so you know, we also, to grow the business, we had to work with licensees and retailers uh, to do, to get more collegiate shelf space 
and so that was uh, an ongoing uh, area. And, and then, uh, you know, at one time, uh, we represented uh, a, a large, well, a, 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 a pretty significant uh, section of the licensed products business. We, in addition to colleges, we had NASCAR and the PGA Tour uh, and the Kentucky Derby uh, and Churchill Downs. And uh, so that was, again, a, a pretty significant piece of the uh, of the uh, monthly uh, reports that came out in the magazines. And uh, uh, so we, uh, you know, it was easy to get to take on a property like NASCAR because with the infrastructure we had built, it was like adding the university. Every time we added a university, we didn't have to hire a person. Uh, it, it, after a while, we may need to hire five people, but uh, it wasn't a one-to-one ratio that we had up with. So uh, we started NASCAR's program, and they told us if we ever paid them half a million dollars in a year, we'd watch the uh, Daytona 500 from the Bill France suite. And, and so in five and a half years, we paid them $5 million, and they fired us and took it in the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the classic case. We were having a conversation earlier today, Lindsey Collins, my producer, about the what I call the woulda, shoulda, couldas, you know? Yeah, yeah. We could have done that. Well, you didn't do that until we showed you how to do that, uh, you know? <laughs> so there's there's a lot of that over the years. I, Bill, I've always felt like that CLC was an example of the American dream, Um you really looked, you took an idea that I think your timing, you look back, the timing was incredible. 81, we're a year away from the NCA losing that lawsuit, which led to the proliferation of, you know, television broadcast and increased interest in collegiate athletics. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I told somebody the other day, I said, only the NCA could be wrong all the time. Uh, they, they've been on the wrong side of every issue. Charlotte said yeah. to me last night, she said, well, why, why did they restrict to one game a week? I said, cause they thought no one would come to the games if they were on television. <laughs> they, they didn't understand television might be the greatest mechanism to get more people to come to games, but, but they didn't. And then you got ESPN coming along at the same time. So you've got, you know, proliferation of games on TV, you got ESPN as a network, and then y'all come along and go, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Schools are getting no royalties from their marks. And I'm seeing thousands of people wearing their marks. And so I just think it was the the perfect time, but you still had to do it. You know, yeah. I mean, you had to go well, out and make it happen. Well, it's, it's interesting to think about if you were going to build a $200 million company the last place you would think you would want to start it is in a window company uh, in Selma, Alabama. But uh, the timing on that end was perfect, too. Uh, Larry Striplin, had, uh, who, uh, who was uh, CEO and, and largest uh, shareholder in the company, uh, had sold a big job in Saudi Arabia. And in the six years that I spent in Selma, uh, we went from two companies doing $12 million to 10 companies doing $60 million. So he was, uh, so he went out and in those 10 companies, one of them was Odie Chrisman Golf 
Yep. Man, yep. And, which was hickory shafted putters, very high quality. And Larry had caddied for Odie Sr. And uh, so he thought if he could sell windows all over the world, he could sell putters. And that was a mistake. And so uh, he was told, you, you know, you can't, uh, if you're going to get in the golf business, you can't do it with one product. You got to really get in the golf business. So in three years in Selma, I had moved from assistant to the president, which is trying to learn what was going on, to president of the window company, which was uh, became the largest company because fueled by that uh, Saudi Arabia job. And uh, so one day, uh, Larry called me and said, "We're going to. Uh, I'm going to meet with Jack Nicholas Group, and and I want you to come with me." So. We went down and met with Jack's licensing guy. This was 1979, and I'd never heard of licensing, but it didn't take long in that meeting to figure out that Jack's heirs for generations would uh, profit off of the Golden Bear logo and the Jack Necklace signature and the other things that Jack was doing. So we came away that day, uh, this little company in Selma, uh, this putter company, we came away with exclusive rights to uh, all uh, accessories, uh, gloves and socks and and all the non-apparel things because Jack wasn't going to uh, pro shops with his products. He was, he, his licensees were going to big department stores and, and they weren't fooling, but he wanted his stuff in the in the golf shop, so uh, we fit that bill. And we also came away with Jack Nicklaus Eyewear, which was sold to the ophthalmic trade. And so Eddie Dobbs, who was running the putter company and these licenses, understood licensing, and uh, he went out and got the rights to Disney characters and for uh, not much money. And we learned a lot about licensing from the licensees perspective and uh so i was uh fascinated and would spend a lot of afternoons after work going out and having a beer with eddie and seeing what he was doing so uh the first year we paid jack seventy five thousand dollars in royalties and and i thought well why are we paying him jack that much and eddie said we're paying him eight percent of sales and the people we're selling to don't understand don't know us from adam and, uh, but they know the Jack Nicholas name and the Golden Bear logo and consumers uh, the same. So it's well worth what we're paying him. So two years later, Coach Bryant came up. I was running a, 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 a window company board meeting and I had to go get Coach Bryant all day. And uh, uh, we were walking up the stairs and he said, Oh, change agents. The guys in New York aren't doing anything for me. And that was IMG, the best licensing marketing company in the world. But uh, they viewed uh, Coach as uh, as a regional guy, and he probably was at that time. But And you talk about timing in 1981. If Coach Bryant won nine games or if Alabama won nine games, Coach Bryant would be the winningest coach and pass Amos Alonzo Stagg with 315 victories. So the timing was great all around with Coach Bryant changing agents, and we talked him into letting us manage his business. And the the Jack Nicholas uh, 
learning curve that we got from both IMG and uh, uh, and uh, Nicholas, and as well as what we were doing. We started going out and licensing Coach Bryant's and and that led to uh, uh, the meeting with Nicholas, and then that led we went out to the SEC and ACC in Alabama, and Ole Miss stepped up uh, first, and and then seven of the eight ACC schools at the time uh, also stepped up. So we had nine schools, and and that was uh, that was enough to learn the business and. And then in three years, I decided it didn't need to be in Selma, Alabama. It needed to be in Atlanta. And, uh, so I bought out the rights and moved it to Atlanta. And there was a guy on the West Coast uh, doing the same thing. And so I merged with him. And we were partners for 10 years. And then we bought him out of the of the domestic licensing. But that's how it all started. And, and uh, it was a really fun business. We were able to get good, bright people who like sports. Uh, and that was, uh, uh, we, we were able to get some really uh, good staff members. So uh, uh, it, was a, it was a fun business because we were always getting products in uh, to approve. And, and there were some weird things that, as you can imagine, that people wanted to put college logos on, some of which were really good, some of them weren't so good, but uh, it was a fun business. Well, you know, you you mentioned a lot in the book about so many people that mentored you, you know, whether that's Coach Bryant or Bud Wilkinson or, you know, Nicholas's people or, you know, Larry Striplin. Striplin is, I worked for, I didn't work for, I was good friends with a man named Lon Varnell, who had been yeah. who had been Coach Rupp's assistant at at uh, Kentucky and came to Swanee and coached there for about thirty years. But at the same time, he he owned banks and you know he was a promoter, Lawrence Welk, and all this. Larry Striplin is another guy. He was a coach, and he's another guy that I think is people just don't know how talented that guy was and how innovative he was. He was you know. He was- he was a great salesman. He could go out and if the company got in trouble, he'd ride out on his white horse and come back with a big sale and everybody'd clap and and pat him on the back and and that was good for a while. And then when he sold that big job, which was incredible, our little company had spent he, he had he had gone I think nineteen times. The architect was in Athens, Greece and the uh, owner was in Tobruk, Saudi Arabia. They were building a military city, and uh, uh, Larry had gotten our windows, which were uh, pretty sophisticated, energy efficient, and uh, gotten our windows specified in the design. Uh, and, and so he had gone to Athens to meet with the architect, and gone to the owner, or gone to uh, Saudi Arabia to hold the hands of the owner and uh, and it paid off in the end because uh, the general contractor that we were in bed with and if he got the job we got it and we thought an English general contractor was going to get it but a German general contractor got the overall uh, construction job and so they tried every way in the world to get us out 
And uh, at the end of the day, right before we were going to give up, they gave up, and and Larry came back with a forty-two point five million dollar contract and eight million dollars in front money, and the window company had only grossed five million dollars a year before. Wow. <laughs> you needed a bigger boat at that point, didn't you? I mean. <laughs> a tiger by the tail, and we also had had installed the job, and it was more windows were about 25% of the job, but doors and uh, uh, fixed glass and uh, vents and louvers and everything, uh, a lot of things came in that uh, window package. And we had to send our uh, plant manager, who knew more about windows than anybody, over to Saudi Arabia to prepare for getting the, you know, getting all the jobs. We were ordering uh, glass and doors and vents and louvers from people all over the world uh, to to produce that job, and and we did a great job of handling it. And uh, you know, Arden McKenzie, who was. George Wallace's secretary for years. Larry had hired her, and she oversaw all the administrative side of the of that job and and of our company, and did a great job in doing that. And uh, there were two other guys that were really instrumental. And one was Ken Jinks. He was a technical guy who came with uh, with the company that Larry bought. Uh, that had the window, the the uh, commercial uh, aluminum window that uh, you could open the window and swing it to the inside and clean it. And you could also open the two panes of glass <laughs> to clean if you needed to, but you rarely needed to do that. But they were two two people that came with the company, Larry Jones, who was who was uh, our manufacturing guy that we sent to Saudi Arabia. And uh, he did a great job of installation, which uh, I thought was a real challenge. But our our company did a great job of, of uh, managing that. Uh, we were the guppy that swallowed the whale. But uh, that, that obviously opened, that took us from being a small company to a good medium-sized company that, uh, that now was able to do a better job in the domestic market, which uh, which which was a good thing. And so anyway, I got a great business education in the six years I was there that was very helpful to me. And, and timing in so many things, and I've told this story, I'm sure, in my uh, last podcast, but... Uh, the name of the book is The Master's Plan, and uh, the way that uh, uh, that that came about is that, uh, you know, I never wanted to be an athletic director, and then I decided that if I didn't take the job that they were asking me to take to replace my teammate and longtime friend, Mel Moore, who had taken a, a serious turn for the worse, and in a, a lung disease issue that he had. And uh, so I decided if I didn't do it, I would regret it. And so uh, I, I got the call on Sunday uh, about taking the job. I went over and met with him on Tuesday, went back and met with him on Friday. 
and uh, and then decided that I was going to do it by the next Sunday. So I stayed. Well, I went back home for a week, and then we had the pre- press conference late the next week. And after the press conference, when I accepted the job, I stayed in Tuscaloosa, and Mary had to go back home and figure out how to uh, sell a house and and uh, m- prepare for the move and. Uh, it was uh, an event that turned both of our lives upside down, but uh, but in the end, it was a great thing. And uh, but anyway, uh, I was coming. I went home for the weekend a few weeks later, and I went to Atlanta. Uh, and uh, I was driving back to Tuscaloosa, and my cell phone rang, and it was Leroy Mullins. Leroy was a trainer, assistant trainer on our staff at Tennessee when I was the coach there. And he had left to take the head job at Ole Miss. And so uh, he he said, uh, Coach, I'm so glad you're going to be working with young people again. And I said, well, Leroy, that wasn't in my master plan. And he said, well, it was in the master's plan. And when I thought back, there were so many things that I thought were divine inter- intervention that uh, that took place to get me back to the Alabama job and then things that happened after I got there. And as I look back at my life and you talk about timing, uh, Rick, uh, the timing was right in so many things that I did. Uh, but it was, I, I strongly believe there is a plan, but you have to be on the lookout for uh, the opportunities that come and take advantage of them. And, and uh, you know, like you said, having an idea is great, but ideas are a dime a dozen. It's who can grab that idea by the throat and turn it into reality of a, of a you know, a profitable uh, uh, company or, or, or product. And, uh, so I was uh, very fortunate in so many ways and with the people that I came in contact with as mentors. There were a lot of them everywhere I went. And another interesting uh, timing issue, I was uh, represented the Bass Angler Sportsman Society. And so when I went to a bass uh, tournament over in Shreveport, Louisiana, and I'd never been to Shreveport in my life. And I thought I was going in as a hero because we had uh, brought this licensee in that, that we thought was going to uh, uh, do a great job for them. And for whatever reason, uh, they thought it was a bad idea. And I got dressed down probably more uh, than I ever had been. But I remained a gentleman to and stomached it and so anyway I uh, decided to leave a day early and I was in a uh, I had a, a young lady with me who was driving and uh, uh, so we were late getting to the airport and uh, we were in an Avis car and the Avis uh, place was off campus and so I, I said we'll go in the Hertz a lot because and I went in and I said you can get this over to the Avis place, can't you? And they said, oh yes, sir, no problem. So we we turned our 
Avis car into Hertz and ran through the uh, airport like O.J. Simpson and, and got on the plane right as the door closed. And I said that I had uh, enough points to fly first class. And and so uh, the young lady that was with me had to had to go back in the back. And I sat next to Mary. And uh, so we uh, exchanged cards. And three months later, I was going back through uh, Birmingham on a Friday afternoon to go to my lake place. And I thought about meeting Mary and got her card out of my wallet and called her. And uh, sure enough, she didn't have a date. And and, uh, we agreed to meet for a drink. And so anyway, 20 years later, uh, I'm married to an oncology nurse and who would have thought, and she's, uh, she had quit practicing, but she, uh, has still kept her uh, license active even to the day. But, uh, that was one of the great timing issues that, uh, has, has had a great impact on my life because she's been a, uh, wonderful thing to me, not only as as a wife, but as a uh, as my uh, medical uh, advisor, and in today's healthcare system, which is pretty com- complex, if you got any serious problems, you need a advocate to to get you through it. And she's been great at doing that. Well, you know, I've got a business partner named Ron Cook in in Nashville, and Ron's a Church of Christ uh, minister's son, who was the dean of men at, uh, at David Lipscomb for years. Ron has a great line. He said, uh, um, coincidence is when God chooses to be anonymous. Uh, <laughs> I, I love that line. I, I mean, and then you, you think about all the forks in the road, and you look back and you go, there was a master's plan. There, 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 I could not have done this. There's too many coincidences. There are too many people I met at this period or that period that leads it. I'll, I'll tell you one more story about Ron. He 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 ran um, a thing called the NFL um, quarterback legends. He, he'd represented about 34 of the legendary NFL quarterbacks, Bart Starr and Johnny Unitas and Kenny Stabler. In fact, he did, Ron did Kenny's funeral, um, did the um, eulogy at Kenny's funeral. But he said they were doing a deal down at uh, – Disney, and there was a guy named Phil Lynn Gale down at Disney at the time, and and Ron said, "I want to call it Football Fantasia." And Phil laughed and said, "Well, you can't do that. We own that that name." And he goes, "Well, if I find it in the dictionary, do I get to do it?" And he said, "Yeah, of course you do, but you're not going to find it in the dictionary." Pulled out the dictionary, and there it was, Fantasia. He said, he's got a plaque that's got Mickey's ears with Football Fantasia and the yeah. NFL Quarterback Club. It's really kind of interesting. Um, you know, Bill, I want to say this about about your career. I I never met anybody at CLC I didn't like. I mean, like really liked. You just hired not only talented, competent people, but good people. I mean, really, really good people. Some of those are still my dear friends. I still admire, you know, the Kit Walshes and the Derek Eilers and the Jennifer Blackmans and the Corey Mosses. I mean, just, you you know, you just hired great people. (laughs) And I think, there was a joy in working with people 
that are just good people. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, and I, I told somebody this this week. I said, "There's an analogy, and I, I could be wrong, but it seems like Nick Saban just doesn't recruit any bad kids. I mean, it's like Alabama's just got they got talented football players, but they're all good kids, and I think you win with good people." Yeah, there's no doubt about that, Rick. And and that wasn't, you know, when I was the AD, when I first got there, uh, Nick had some problems with, uh, you know, Alvin Camaro was a was a uh, signee for us, and uh, and and Nick really kicked him off the team. And you got to be bad to uh, uh, for Nick to kick you off the team as a player, because he always believed that he could save them. Uh, even the bad actors, but he uh, he had some problems with uh, early on with with uh, I think character people that he signed that were good players and uh, weren't the kind of players that uh, that fit into that system. And uh, he got better at that. Uh, not that he wasn't good at it all along, but he was really frustrated a few years. Uh, with the players and their entitlement uh, attitudes. And, you know, uh, you can have great players and and uh, you can have d- divided teams because of great players that aren't getting enough time and, and have the, uh, you know, I've always believed and I learned uh, uh, a great lesson, leaders lead, and if you don't, if you're a manager of people, and if you don't get them to believe, particularly your senior people, if you don't get them to believe what you want them to believe, they're going to lead in a different direction. And uh, I had that happen. One of the, I, I didn't do a great job of that at Tennessee when I was uh, the head coach my seven years there, but I did a great job of that at CLC, and not only. Uh, getting the right people on the bus, but making sure they understood their roles, and and uh, and getting the senior leaders to buy in to what we wanted to do, and they did a great job of of you know taking it on down the the line and the different levels that we had, and so the proudest thing that I had after leaving the company was the culture that we built. Not only did we have really good people, but they were all comfortable in their roles. Uh, and, uh, and again, uh, we wanted them to act like owners and they did. And, you know, in terms of uh, watching expenses, every, you know, every dollar that you get from the sale, you might get 15% of it that goes to the bottom line. If you're lucky, maybe less than that. But every dollar that you save, a dollar goes to the bottom line. So that's as important uh, as as anything in building the culture of your organization is that they do feel like owners, and we were successful in doing that. And the uh, you know the Pat Battles and Derek Eilers and Kit Walsh's. Uh, Catherine Singers and a lot of those that were senior leaders uh, 
really bought in and and made sure that those that they worked with and people that reported to them had the same values. Well, that's a great place for us to leave today. I could talk for hours about the book. The book is The Master's Plan. I got my copy on Amazon. Bill, where else can people find the book? Uh, They can get it. uh, Barnes & Noble in Tuscaloosa has it. Uh, The uh, Barnes & Nobles and... uh, uh, the other big bookstore, uh, Paulette, uh, I'm sure has it. They can, uh, Amazon.com, uh, uh, Whitman Publishing uh, is another place that they can buy it direct. Well, listen, I appreciate you being with me today. The book is The Master's Plan. Make sure you guys go out and get it. And I can't thank you enough, Bill, for being with us today from the bridge. Well, I, I appreciate the uh, promo for the book. I have been very pleased with the sales to date. And, you know, the the book is, you know, kind of Alabama and Tennessee oriented with a lot of detail from uh, those days, uh, but also detail from me, uh, from Coach Bryant coming back to Alabama and, and me being fortunate enough to be on a team that won six games in four years. (laughs) The high school uh, newspaper headlines read uh, uh, West End End's successful grid season, 4-4-1. And uh, winning four games was a big deal uh, in that year. And uh, to be able to go to Alabama on a scholarship and, and the relationship with Coach Bryant and where that led was uh, was pretty amazing. So uh, I, I think there are a lot of lessons that people could learn from from uh, different uh, places in my life that I wrote about in the book, but especially those interested in business uh, in the write-up on CLC. So thanks for your time, Rick, and as always, it's great talking to you. Give Charlotte our best. I'll do it. You do the same for Mary. And, and we we got to go fishing soon. We're going to figure that right, out. All right. That's a good deal. Tell me when, uh, call me when the fish are biting and uh, we're, we're kind of footloose and fancy free for the most part. So uh, we'll try to make that happen. I like it. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks again, Bill. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. Bye. Let's jump back up on the old soapbox. Speaking of chemistry, here's a little something I wrote in my book, Analog Advice in a Digital World. The chapter says, don't marry someone you can live with, marry someone you can't live without. Speaking of the ultimate team sport, choosing a spouse or life partner can make or break your career and every other good thing in your life. We all need a wingman or wingwoman, someone we can count on through thick and thin. Your spouse is the best person to fill that need and to give you the opportunity to reciprocate and fill that need for him or her. Your life partner will push you along when you are tired, cheer you up when you're down, call you out when you're wrong, and back you to the hilt when you're right. But remember, no one will ever be able to fill all of your holes. Two halves may make a hole, but two holes 
make a marriage. And that's the view from the soapbox. As always, we'll close with a terrific place to eat on the road with Rick. Now, I have a great friend named Tom Pierce. Tom, for years, was down in Louisiana in Lafayette at the University of Louisiana and has recently relocated to Fayetteville, Arkansas. Tom's back in graduate school at age 65, getting a master's degree and doing a lot of really cool things. But when he lived down in Lafayette, he took me one night to a great restaurant called Charlie G's. Now, Tom told me you can order whatever you want, but if you're smart, you'll order what I order. And so I did, and I continued to do so. I got a bowl of smoked duck and andouille sausage gumbo with a large crab cake that we actually put in the bowl on top of the gumbo. You eat it with a full loaf of French bread so you can mop up everything in the bowl. This is a great restaurant. They've got grilled fish and steaks. They have live piano music seven nights a week, and they have an amazing wine list. But trust me, start with a cup of gumbo and a mini crab cake. Yeah, they'll do that for you. It's Charlie G's in Lafayette, Louisiana, on the road with Rick. I hope you enjoyed today's show and my very special guest, Bill Battle. Go out and get the book. It's The Master's Plan. It's a must-read for everyone in our business. We'll see you back here next week from the bridge.